Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum. This is Network Reorient. I am Sophia Rahman, PhD candidate at the University of Leeds in the Theology Department. With me today is Dr. Shaban Amir of American Islamic College, Chicago. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Amir. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. So let's jump straight into it. Dr. Amir is working, or has worked rather, I should say, on the experience of Muslim American women on college campuses uh, within specific uh, American institutes. And we're going to discuss some of that today. So Shabana, can you tell us a bit about who you are first, what work you do, um, maybe a little bit about working at the American Islamic College, um, and in particular your work that has culminated in the publication of your fantastic award-winning book, mm. I should say, um, <laughs> Muslim American Women on Campus. Mm, thank you. Yes, I work at the American Islamic College in Chicago. Um, it is a wonderful place. It's one of two liberal arts institutions that are Muslim in the United States. Uh, we have BAs and MAs in Islamic Studies. I am their um, general education coordinator, so I teach what I'm asked to teach, <laughs> but I also specialize in gender and Islam. So that's one of my loved um, things to do at the American Islamic College. I have a PhD in Education Policy Studies and Anthropology from Indiana University, and I've taught at a number of places in the United States. And um, this uh, study that you're talking about, um, represented in my book, uh, Muslim American Women on Campus, uh, was an ethnographic study that I did soon after 9-11. Right. So quite a, a sensitive period that you, mm. were, you were working in. It was. Yeah. And the funny thing is that when I proposed my research, 9-11 had not yet happened. Right. So the way I had visualized my study, it was a very different one. And then 9-11 happened and I had uh, friends of mine who were not Muslim come up to me and say, well, this gives a whole new color to your study and it's probably good for you. And I looked at them and said, good for me. I'm Muslim. This is really awful. Yeah. And not only are we uh, under uh, surveillance, I was obviously doing the study in Washington, D.C., where state surveillance and state security was at an all-time high, but my uh, respondents and my potential respondents were uncomfortable, frightened, uh, and very aware mm -hmm. of the presence of this uh, security apparatus. Um, they were uncomfortable with being recruited for the study. Uh, even though I was Muslim, they um, were afraid of what, where this data was going, sure. and I completely understood that. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to get started. So it was, a, it was an awkward time mm. altogether. How did you allay some of those fears? Yeah, so I was also a member of the Muslim community in Washington, D.C. So for many people, they introduced me to each other and said, hey, we know her, she's safe. She's not passing on information to the FBI. Sure. Um, and so this, uh, it helped that I was part of the Muslim community. Uh, it helped that people knew me, that I had been uh, part of the Muslim community in sort of Muslim causes, activism, etc. for quite some time. Uh, and um, that helped, but it didn't 
necessarily make it always easy. Sure. Mm. I, I, I appreciate there must have been many obstacles in, in being able to, you know, get to... Um, right. Well, part of those obstacles are that college campuses were uncomfortable mm. about being under um, the microscope right after 9-11, vis-a-vis their Muslim students. So uh, it took some time getting the permissions as well. Mm. They were a little uncomfortable with that too. So, yeah. <laughs> How easy do you think it would be for you to run a you know research of this type now when we have a lot of, I mean, in the UK we've got Prevent, mm. um, and, and, I, and I understand in America you've right. got CVE, you call it? Right, yeah. yes, yes. Sadly, we have, um, so, you know, uh, we have... Because we are a British-based yeah. um, podcast. Maybe you could explain what CVE is. Right, right. Yeah. right. CVE is Countering Violent Extremism, and it's essentially we've... Uh, I think we've borrowed it from you guys. Is that Probably. what it is? Yeah, so one of the European imports that <laughs> we could have done Sorry. without. Yeah. <laughs> but, yes, we have it, and... Um, The thing is, though, that um, the trouble with those kinds of frameworks is that doing uh, research with Muslims uh, under the uh, shadow of uh, policy frameworks like Prevent and CVE colors you with the colors of betrayal and treachery. Mm. Um, As a Muslim woman, when you uh, speak about, say, for example, Islam and gender and Muslim woman, you are immediately colored as potentially a traitor, uh, washing your dirty laundry in public and that kind of thing. So those are always um, struggles that we face. Um, uh, We ask questions about how we can ensure that we protect our communities. I feel that as a Muslim uh, scholar, uh, my job is to protect my community, uh, but also to do research on my community. My job is not to misrepresent facts. My job is not to misrepresent my data, but Mm -hmm. my job is also to protect my community from state surveillance and state violence. Sure. Uh, This is a difficult balancing act. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you talk about, say, for example, in my book, I talk about how um, uh, cultural and community surveillance of Muslim women's bodies makes things difficult for them. Um, very often, I am seen as that person who's, you know, the angry Muslim woman, angry with her community and selling it out. Right. So there's always that struggle that you have to say, no, I'm not that person either, yeah. right? Um, so there are always difficulties uh, doing this kind of academic work uh, as a Muslim. Muslim, as a woman, and as an as an academic. Sure, and talking about the results of your of your research, mm. one of the things that, I mean, well, perhaps before I go on to mm. to to one of the things that I found that your book highlights very well, mm. is maybe perhaps you could give us a a summary. I know it's difficult to summarize mm. an entire research in <laughs> in like you know a sound bite, but maybe if you mm. could give us like the main crux of what 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 you feel you've achieved from from the research. Right. So the study uh, was an ethnographic study of Muslim uh, uh, American college students um, focusing on women. Uh, And I was looking at their experiences within campus uh, culture. Um, The study started out being somewhat different, but it ended up being their experiences within campus culture, uh, which meant their experiences with Islamophobia within 
campus cultures. Very often when we think of college, we think of liberal, pluralist spaces, diverse spaces where you can be whoever you are. Right. You can discover yourself and mm. everybody will accept you because it's college and we're working in knowledge spaces, right? Yeah. Everybody's going to be enlightened and liberal. Broad-minded. Uh, broad-minded, yeah. right? And then in those spaces when you discover mm. Islamophobia deeply rooted is when you discover that something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Right, <laughs> not sure. To, not to... <laughs> Not to, <laughs> yeah. Nobody's saying no, about no, nothing about Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one of the things that I really appreciated um, that your your book highlights um, is the live that the lived experience of the Muslim women who made up the participants of your study <laughs> seem to be faced by a binary option: either they engage fully in campus culture, you you talk about the the culture of drinking or mm-hmm. you know dating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fashion, dressing yes. in a particular way. Right. Um, or, if, and if they're not going to engage in that, then they retreat to, mm. you know, into Muslim enclaves, right. as you've uh, called them, for, for safety. Yes. Um, and I understand this is something that you also critique. Mm-hmm. I'd really love to hear you talk to the critique of this binary, mm-hmm. um, because it's a shame when, mm-hmm. when you, you know, options are reduced to two things, especially mm-hmm. in an environment that's supposedly, you know, as, right. you, as you've already mentioned, broad-minded, right. open, educated. Right, right. That's a good, really, really good question. Reminds me of uh, one of my research respondents. Uh, I call her Roshan in the book. All of these are, of course, pseudonyms. Uh, but she talks about how... Uh, she first comes to college and she makes an attempt to uh, become part of the party scene. But at the same time, she's praying and she's attempting to keep her dean, right? Mm. Um, and she discovers after some time that it's really difficult for her to maintain this project. Uh, that's not because her, there's something wrong with her project uh, of uh, keeping these two together, but that the project is not um, hospitable to her maintenance of her religious identity. Right. Uh, so going to, for example, going to a party and turning down drinks is always fraught with all kinds of uh, weight and um makes it very difficult for her. So when I talk about this, so so she talks about how um, she was trying to do this and she uses the image of um, trying to keep her feet, each each foot is in a different boat. So she's trying to uh, travel and uh, her feet are in two different boats. Eventually she's going to fall into the water and she's going to sink. So she feels that her choice then uh, primarily is to either go completely towards um, uh, culturally assimilating, uh, losing the visibility of her religious practices, losing the visibility of her religious affiliation um, and becoming like the dominant majority or to practice what we've called for a long time isolationism. I know this has been a long kind of debate. It's not a new one. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in Britain, there's been a long kind of debate about cultural assimilation versus isolationism. Mm-hmm. And people have, you know, long taken, you know, these as uh, binary choices. I know people will say, well, I chose to do this, but I also had the opportunity to do that. But in many cases, those are, you know, anecdotal choices. But in many cases, it is very hard to do both of those things at the same time. So when I talk about Russian and her feet in two boats, I'm not obviously not recommending 
any one of those binary choices. I'm critiquing the fact that these young women, these young uh, people are uh, faced with a binary choice of mm-hmm. either being within a bubble, uh, an enclave, a Muslim enclave, or uh, being um, vanishing within the dominant majority um, and vanishing as a Muslim. Kenji Yoshino has a book called Covering, and it's called The Hidden Assault on Our Civil Rights. Uh, And he talks about how the new civil rights, um, the new civil rights struggle is really about... um, um, m- maintaining sort of your uh, ability to um, uh, kind of be visibly who you are. So, for example, he, he talks about being gay and uh, Asian American, and he's, he talks about how it's easy enough if you don't flaunt it. Uh, right. So people will say, you know, why don't you, why aren't you a Muslim who keeps it private, who keeps it um, to yourself? Don't just don't flaunt it. Don't bring it to uh, the table. Uh, and he says, well, that in itself is um, is a is a symbolic violence. So, for example, um, my friend uh, Sally Gallman talks about this in the context of women who uh, cover their heads, um, and people will say, well, you know, if if she's treated um, in a racist fashion it's really her own fault she's asking for it Mm. they're effectively asking for it it's your own fault if you don't in Goffman's words if you don't cover it Mm. right so if you cover it then you can escape the racism so it's your own fault if you go ahead and flaunt it if you go ahead and act in this very muslimy fashion in public mm, sort of and like so the you last can... sort of victim blaming exactly that's exactly yeah. so it's your own fault why mm. can't you be polite right mm. be polite and uh downplay your identities where uh where other practices so for example christmas in the united states is a very cultural very often a very cultural practice so uh, but Eid is not a cultural practice. Right. Eid becomes that religious practice. So we can't have that, but we can have that. Right. But it's only because of the historical, um, you know, uh, incorporation of Christmas into mm. the broader culture. Uh, so why can't uh, Eid uh, mm. and uh, other uh, religious holidays also be part? So we. So I critique that uh, that women uh, that uh, these Muslims are faced with these binary choices. And I also talk about, uh, Maxine Rodinson talks about how uh, identities very often in the present day are religionized. So, for example, as a Muslim, uh, when you introduce yourself as a Muslim, people immediately, um, or even just the fact that you do introduce yourself as a Muslim, not as a, you know, a person who is Muslim and Pakistani and enjoys basketball or what, you know, you don't, you aren't allowed the luxury of a complex identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your religiousness or your religious uh, affiliation overpowers who you are. Uh, And then you can be identified and stamped with that. Oh, she's Muslim. What kind of Muslim? It's it's very often it's a reductive identity. Uh, And so many Muslims, I find in my book, I talk about this, how many Muslims also end up objectifying their own identities because that is in many ways what we're expected to do right and you've got me thinking now um i mean so you've given the example of roshan and she's given this quite powerful metaphor Mm. actually isn't it you you almost feel Mm. like the imbalance when when you're hearing it of having your feet in two boats Mm -hmm. and, and i wonder if this is 
um, a dilemma that Muslim men um, mm-hmm. can, you know, sort of <laughs> engage with or understand um, in the same way. Because, right. of course, so, yeah, there's the pressure to assimilate. Right. And, I mean, assimilation is, that's a whole dis- discussion we could have there, mm-hmm. isn't it? Who who defines the... the um, the basis upon which you assimilate, what what right. constitutes assimilation, and right. I mean that that's a whole oppressive experience in itself. Right. But also the gendered experience yeah. um, of Muslim women specifically. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess my next question really is about um, your research choices. Mm. Um, so yet you know there's gender, there's race, there's class. Mm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the research choices mm. that you made when carrying out this study, mm. and if there's anything you do differently mm. were you to carry this out again. Oh, good heavens once you write a book there's the all those nights where you wonder what if would have happened if i'd done it differently mm. or i wish i'd done it differently so people will say for example oh why did you do your research at the what we call private universities right. where, you know what uh, are uh, you really don't have private universities but we have private non-state universities what would have happened if you'd done those uh, that research at a large state university and yes it would have been a very different experience right. why because of class mm. Because of social class. Now, many of the students that I did um, end up interviewing were uh, not privileged. Uh, many of them did get plenty of financial aid because they sure. were on uh, inter- admitted on merit and so on. Um, uh, but there were people who were very privileged. And uh, so if I had done my research at a state institution, the class factor would have been different. Right. But part of the reason I picked those um, private, uh, non-state, elite, uh, wealthy universities was to look at what, uh, to what extent does uh, Islamophobia trump class? Right. I can't yeah. even use the word Trump anymore. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so even if you're a rich, privileged Muslim who's come through, you know, um, elite schools and your parents are doctors and you have all this money, you still face those struggles. You are mm. still objectified as a Muslim. You are still under surveillance. You don't even wear a job, for example, and you're still objectified and interrogated yeah. for your identity. So that was part of kind of the where the the research choices come in and the men issue is really such an interesting one right sure. because uh my my women respondents they were interrogated uh if they wore hijab of course are you oppressed are you okay uh why do you wear a hijab why do you cover do you think this do you think that do you you know wear it in the shower you know all of those questions of course but if they didn't wear hijab also Mm -hmm. they were interrogated for um are they muslim enough are they really muslim are they nominally muslim um so there's constantly that interrogation which men don't face Mm -hmm. right the religious garb issue really affects muslim women so you find that um in at political time at at, in political climates like 9 11 or like after the muslim ban uh or in this uh era where we have uh you know a lot of neo nazi you know violence uh present both in the United States and I think in Europe as well uh where you have women essentially on the front lines mm. and their bodies are there on the front lines That's right. uh and um then you have all these questions about oh are muslim women allowed to not wear hijab if their lives are in danger and you know people who are have all these opinions men who have all these 
these opinions yes. about what they should do mm. when their lives and their children's lives are at risk. I would never, uh, um, my personal practice is um, I don't wear hijab. I don't wear recognizably, um, quote unquote, Muslim clothing. I, I try to dress modestly, but I would um, um, uh, defend, you know, to the death any woman who was wearing hijab or wearing niqab or, or anything or any woman who chose not to. Right. Um, this is, uh, you know, again, you know, it's, it's a truism to say, you know, it's between you and God. Uh, but for men, um, the question doesn't even arise. That's right. Right. Yeah. So the questions that are questions for women are not even questions for men. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to research choices, the other issue that I faced in that um, sort of this these private uh, universities was that they were, you know, predominantly, you know, upper class, uh, but also it was difficult to find black respondents, for example. So I had to really try very hard. Um, But part of that was because many of these Muslim student groups end up being primarily Arab and Desi. Right. Yeah, it's the same uh, thing. Yeah. Yes. It, um, yeah. I, yeah. That's what I hear. Right. Mm-hmm. The Islamic societies very often be, are run by uh, Arabs and Desis, and they have you know the proper Islam. And yes, of course. You know, so if you're black, a lot of the time they won't come to mm. these uh, these groups, uh, and if they do, then they feel just marginalized and underrepresented, and you know, just not not treated well. So. Um, so, for example, my uh, respondent, I'll call her Elizabeth, she was black, and she um, said, you know, we're just kind of undercover. We just don't come to these places. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't really get how we're Muslim and in what ways we're Muslims, what our struggles are. I have I have family who are non-Muslim. Um, the clothing expectations uh, in many ways don't fit uh, sure. uh, these respondents, um, the, um, some ways, sometimes the immigrant cultural perspective doesn't fit them in many cases. Uh, and in some cases, I, t- I talked about this in, uh, today as well, is that the, um, um, uh, some of my people, <laughs> immigrant Muslim Americans, um, have, are are socially upwardly mobile. We have immigrated for the purpose of upward mobility. Uh, And um, there is an idea in which uh, many people have really separated themselves from their black Muslim uh, communities and thought that they were different from them. Uh, And they have internalized, many of them have internalized white supremacy um, and sort of identified... um, this um, kind of a, a pathologized mm. black communities and said, oh, we're different because we're going to be rich and yeah. we're going to be better and we're going to be almost just almost like whites. Yeah, so, seeking that proximity right, to that whiteness. Proximity, and it's never yeah. going to happen. So after 9-11, uh, many uh, blacks turned to, you know, immigrants who were like, oh, no, now we're being, you know, profiled and everything. And the blacks were like, yeah, we could have told you. <laughs> You're not going to make it. Yeah. But. Yeah. It was bound to happen. It was bound to happen. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Mir. I feel like we could continue this conversation over a number of podcast sessions, but we will have to draw this one to an end now. I hope that it's whet the appetite of our listeners to go out and get a copy of the book, which I will remind you is called Muslim American Women on Campus. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sophia. Here's one.